And now for the major announcement. Da, 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 da. Oh, Marcus, for years, listeners have been urging with us, pleading with us, begging us to run Wellness and Couch events in their own hometown and not just in Melbourne. Well, get ready, folks, because in 2018, there's not one, not two, but three major events coming your way. The Wellness Base Camp is our brand new one-day event featuring your favourite Wellness Couch podcasters in your very own home state. In 2018, we are coming to Brisbane, Adelaide and Kiama, just south of Sydney, for one inspirational day of health and wellness. Oh, incredible lineups to MP. We've got the Up for Chatters, we've got Joe Witten, we've got Fuad, we've got Kale Brock, Audra Starkey, the incredible Marcus Pierce, Brett Hill, and so many more. Now, seats are strictly limited to these events. The Wellness Base Camp is not a big Wellness Summit 1,000 people job, so do not muck around. No, you've got to get in quick, MP. The early bird two-for-one tickets are now available. Best Christmas present ever. To book your tickets and for all the information, head to thewellnessbasecamp.com. Night. So dark. So cold. The wagon sways. The rhythmic pounding of the wheels repeating sends a message to my frightened heart. Do not stop beating. The sudden lurch, screech of steel on steel. The door slides open. Rouse, rouse, angry voices shouting, a multitude of dogs barking. Plumes of fire illuminate the night sky. The smoke drifts over the gathered people. The smell, the awful smell. It is the smell of fear. We have arrived in hell. Auschwitz. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to 100 Not Out, featuring your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. Welcome to 100 Not Out, a weekly show dedicated to helping you master the art of aging well. My name is Marcus Pierce, and always it gives me great pleasure to bring on the co-founder of The Wellness Couch and The Wellness Guys. Here is Dr. Damien Christoph. Hello, great man. Hello, Pierce. Great to be here with you. We just listened to the poem titled Selection by mm. Selena Biniaz. We are in part two of this moving interview, to say the least. It's about to get, if you thought last week was deep, it's about to get deeper. Um, we have both been moved by this experience. We would like to think our listeners have been as well. Um, Selena is about to go into some of the depths of not not just despair, but also the depths of um, also the recovery and the healing, particularly after the liberation um, of the war. You're about to learn uh, so much about how Selena has continued to live her life with grace and forgiveness um, in the post-war era. And then at the end of this episode, we will play for you the full range of poetry that Selena Biniaz wrote after the 70, uh, at the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz uh, that she wrote uh, uh, January 27, 2015. This was poetry that, in Selena's own words, came through her. It's, she didn't know where it came from. She felt compelled to put the words down on paper. And for the very first time, she has recorded this um, into a microphone, so to speak, and it has been recorded. So now it is will go down uh, in the annals and be recorded um, forever, um, firstly here 
on 100 Not Out. So let's go into the second part of the interview with Selena Biniaz. Here she is, survivor of the Holocaust, Schindler's List, one of the youngest survivors, the beautiful Selena Biniaz. Thank you, Selena, for going into that level of detail. And and as Damo was just saying to me in the message, it's just it's it, it's so far uh, from the daily reality of so many of us. And um, in the in the actual movie Schindler's List, you know the shower scene that you described is for me the most harrowing scene. It's it's been portrayed what what feels and it's hard to know obviously, but what feels so accurately. Um, but also the humanity of Oscar Schindler um, again, which is portrayed so well in the movie when he arrives at, at Auschwitz to pretty much demand that all of the women be popped be popped in the, the box cars and, and taken to Brinlitz. Um, I think just a couple of points because I don't want to uh, necessarily ask you questions too much about uh, the movie itself, but a few things just so that people can recognise. Oscar Schindler, as we mentioned, spent all of his money uh, on, 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 on saving as many Jews as he could. But the other thing is in the, in the munitions factory, none of the... None of the none of the guns, none of the anything worked, which I think is amazing. And part of his whole modus operandi was that nothing worked. So any of the any of the machinery, any of the artillery that landed in the Germans' hands was was ineffective, uh, which I just think adds another layer to the story. But but one question which which we do have on this experience is: we live in a world now of iPhones and instant communication. You mentioned a number of times that you had no contact with the men and so you didn't know if your dad was still alive your wife i sorry your mum had no idea if her husband was still alive can you describe what it was like to have the unity obviously with your mum after escaping mengala but then with your dad when you arrived in brinlitz can you describe um, as best as you can what that is like well it was wonderful to see them but we could not have any contact with them as such you know because they slept they were still segregated the men were segregated from the women my mother had developed pneumonia on the train so she was quite sick at that point uh but we uh, just to tell you uh we was working on parts for the v2 my job was uh, with another girl uh, we were going to be Schindler picked us because he felt that we as children would be able to clean the machinery. Our small hands would go all the way up to oil and clean the various stampers, you know. Uh, uh, there's so much to say. Schindler told us that he nothing was going to come out of that factory that was of any use to the Germans at all. And in order to to do that, because we were still watched by uh, German soldiers, you know, camp soldiers, uh, camp guards, really. Uh, all the calibrators were switched, done in such a way that a calibrator would show that the part was correct, but it wasn't. Schindler told us that nothing from that factory, he told us to sabotage everything, that nothing from that factory would ever leave and be of any use, and nothing ever left. Just to give you another idea of Schindler, you know, when the war is, when we heard the war was over, which was on the 7th and 8th of May, but we could not, uh, we were not liberated then because in Yalta, 
there was an agreement between uh, the powers to be that the Russians were going to liberate Czechoslovakia and the Americans were going to liberate Germany. And the Russians had not reached up to us yet, so we could not leave the premises because there were still a lot of black shirts marauding all over the place. Uh, it was not safe. But we were sure we had to save Schindler and his wife because he was definitely a Nazi. And uh, if he had stayed, the Russians would have definitely killed him, as they did the camp commander uh, whom we kept. And they hung him uh, when they finally liberated us. So one night uh, on the 8th, Schindler gathered us in the factory uh, floor and addressed us. And he cried. He said he wished he could have saved more people. I don't know whether you know, but um, some people, some of the men took some gold out of their teeth. We had a goldsmith who made a ring for him, and on the inside of the ring was inscribed, he who saves, in Hebrew, he who saves one, saves the world entire, and was presented to Oscar Schindler. We dressed them in striped pajamas, and Mrs. Schindler too. They were put into their car, and two of our younger men were going to drive them from Moravia, where the camp was located, to the germ to the American German uh, so to the American zone in Germany over the border, and that's how we saved him, you know, and her. That was the least we could do for all the things that he did for us. Uh, it's a beautiful story. Sorry, Dame, just really quickly because I know you've got the next question. <laughs> That's all right. But, uh, Selena, I thought you might like to know that um, that ring was um, – that the, the model, the, the lead model of that ring now lives in Melbourne in Australia because uh, Louis Gross, who is the son of Joseph Gross, who um, was the jeweler in Schindler's factory – um, moved to Australia, um, died in Australia, and um, his son one day was looking at his um, late father's, you know, belongings in his room and found this little lead model in the bedroom and just thought it was a piece of junk and then and then uh, found out through research that it was the model of the ring that was presented to Oscar Schindler before he departed the factory. So the whole story goes all around the world and, and lands in a little country like ours. <laughs> Well, interesting thing, uh, uh, Steven Spielberg made copies of the of the little ring and distributed them to the people who were working on the film in Poland. So some of the people uh, also possessed that little ring, and of course. In Poland, on uh, on the doors of the factory, the original factory, there was the picture of Oscar Schindler with the words in both Polish and Hebrew, uh, he who serves, saves one, saves the world entire, you know. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to add one more thing. Before he left Schindler, he, did, uh, he told the, a couple people, the factory that he took over was a cloth factory at one time, and there were some bales of cloth left over. So uh, he decided to give each family two bolts of cloth and five pairs of shears or scissors. 
uh, I still have one pair because he felt that uh, we could barter these. We had no money, but we could barter these for food, clothing when we got back to Poland. That's how good a, a person he was. Oh, he sounds incredible. I, I'm just I'm on the brink of tears with emotion because this is such a moving story, and there's so much that I'd love to just continue to ask you about, Selena. That we um, we often hear of survivors saying that there are many others who are still mentally and emotionally and spiritually stuck in the concentration camps, and they've never given themselves permission to be freed. How hard was it to move on with your life? And if you could put the pieces together, what exactly did you do or change in your life in order to? move forward what did you do how did you get there well i i told you i think it was the fact that i met the nun the fact that we lived in the small german town rather than in a displaced persons camp where we would have been always amongst people who had different visions of what they suffered in camps you know and also my parents who are extremely forward looking people uh, I was very fortunate, really, that I got met up with these, you know, different people who helped me work through my anger. I was angry. There was no question about so, it. So you were angry. I mean, you were was, angry for how long do you think you were angry for? Were you angry for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? How long do you think you were angry for? No, no. I was angry right after because right. I we ended up in Poland, you know, after the year uh, of walking back to Poland, mm. and I had, as I said, I had only had two years of education, mm. and here I was, I had, uh, at the end of May, I had turned 14, and uh, I was not prepared, I was stupid, I looked like a, a you know, a inmate of a concentration camp, because <laughs> I was like a scarecrow, really, yeah. because uh so there was anger there, and fortunately we were able to get a tutor to te to start teaching me, uh, the, you know, so I could take some tests and possibly make it into school. Fortunately, it was the summer, so I had about six weeks to do it. Uh, you know, if something is denied to you, you really crave it, and my education was denied to me, so... I went to it full blast, you know, and because my head was empty, everything stuck in there. So it was not too difficult, really, to learn everything. I took the exams, uh, in, and I got into a high school. There were just two of us, well, two Jewish girls, and started uh, in September in a, in a, high, a middle school or high school. But unfortunately, September was the uh, beginning of the Rosh Hashanah, and there was another pogrom, a terrible pogrom in eastern part of Poland. And so uh, my parents decided at that point that we weren't going to stay in Poland because of this new virulent anti-Semitism. Mm. And by then we have heard from my uncle in both Palestine and in uh, my father's brothers the one in Des Moines, Iowa, that they were going to send us affidavits. So we knew that we could leave Europe. And so my parents decided to leave Poland. Oh, and amazing. we, you know, that. So 
I was very fortunate to have parents who did not dwell on on the losses that they, uh, and you know, that happened to them. Like my mother lost everybody, yeah. you know, but she was a very resilient person. Yeah, oh, that, I mean, that resilience is something that's learned, isn't it? You, you Obviously, you carried that resilience forward into your life. And did you find that, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of... Um, there's, I mean, I, the the notes that Marcus has prepared for this particular interview is significant and, and it's so long and there's stories in there that I just, I get tingles reading the stories and I don't, I don't know if we're actually going to get to these particular stories. But, you know, there would have been times in your life where um, things would have been recalled and circumstances and events would have come back to you. Did you find it difficult to fall in love or to love again? Did you, did you find it difficult to actually find that within yourself that you could love um, someone else, another person? Was that tough um, or was that easy for to fall in love because you felt that that was something that was missing at some point in your life? No. Uh, I found that, uh, especially not only, you know, I was very fortunate when I then came to the United States that I was found, that the reception that we got uh, in the town that my uncle lived in, uh, we were the first displaced persons to come there, the first foreigners. We, the community was very receptive. They were very nice to us. We were just very fortunate that everything went our way. Uh, I had a wonderful time my last year in high school. Uh, I was, you know, accepted as just a nice human being, nice student. All of these things helped uh, restore my dignity and my self-image. And then by being able to, uh, uh, one of the colleges, my college as a matter of fact, took a chance on me by giving me a scholarship and work program and uh, allowed me then to pursue my education. So things were good, you know, and uh, I liked that, you know, it helped me. Absolutely. Maybe if I had been living with people who were always talking about what happened to them, some people just could not uh, could not get out from that guilt stick, you know, uh, and they perpetuated it on their kids. I never did. I never told my children about my experiences till they were about uh, thirteen and eleven or so, because I they knew that I was a displaced person. But I never elaborated on the fact that I had been in a concentration camp. I figured, you know, they're going to have to form their own ideas. I wasn't, they were going to have a happy childhood, not commiserate with me for what? It, was, it wasn't anything that they did that needed to uh, be, feel guilty about, you know? Uh, so I'd, um, we want to move on to, and, and I think you, you, you've um, created a great segue here into into the the positives and the empowerment that you that you lived with. I would just love to ask you one question about p- potentially the interim leading up to, say, your children being eleven and thirteen. And from what I've gathered, um, 
that that your example has been very powerful in your family. From what I understand, your grandson um, has been an intern at the Shoah Foundation, which was a great um, initiative from uh, Steven Spielberg and his team after Schindler's List, which went and captured over 56,000 interviews from Holocaust survivors to share their stories, to really perpetuate um, what happened over 70 years ago. But I want to bring up one thing, and, and it's very difficult to bring up, but I definitely think it's important that people understand this. And a word of warning to our listeners that we're going to just, I'm going to mention here some some rather graphic instances, but you spoke about how your children, you wanted to share it with them when they were older, say 11 and 13. You've acknowledged that uh, at some point, you definitely lost your faith and one of your recollections is, is haunting and it's um, uh, it's the vision of German soldiers swinging infants by the feet, bashing their heads against stone walls and, and another example of children being shot dead on a mountain whilst the Germans are playing a lullaby. In, in the background now, Damien and I both have children. Uh, our, our, you know, our eyes pretty much well up at the vision of it. Um, you've said How that. How do you, you know, know all this? How do you know all of that? That really surprises me. You know, because that's all true. I mean, it was the liquidation of the ghetto that I saw soldiers, you know, throwing babies' heads against the. Uh, walls, and that's true about the being shot, the children being shot in the camp where the lullaby was being played. But I don't know how you know all of that. Oh, it's just part of as just part of the research in, into your story. But here's the thing: that it, again, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been quoted as asking your mother at the time, "Mum, how how could God allow this?" Um, and then. It's been, and then you've referred to the fact that you were saying that you know you you did lose your faith. And I suppose my question is, did you lose your faith in God or humanity? Um, and if so, did you find that you that you um, found your faith in humanity in the world again before you told your children, so that you could tell that your children in a way that was, um, you know, that you you weren't a victim or still emotionally and spiritually living in that camp. You had moved on. Your parents had taught you the power of moving on. So does that mean that by the time you told your children, you had restored your faith um, in humanity? I have definitely restored my faith in humanity. There's no question about it. Uh, uh, but I will admit that I, at that point, at the age of 12, I know that I had no longer could believe that there was such a thing as an all-knowing, all-loving God, you know. There was just too much uh, evil around, you know. <laughs> I majored in philosophy, I guess I've wanted all my life to find out why, you know, these things did happen. So uh, I pursued all kinds of uh, different avenues. Uh, but in terms of, uh, I, I'm definitely, uh, my, if I will have a religion of any sort, it's a humanist religion. I believe in the power and the goodness of most human beings. That's a beautiful place to be, isn't it? Um, Yeah, that's a really beautiful place to be. And we often talk about, uh, you know, the state of the world at the moment. There's, you know, terrible things happening in America with guns. There's 
crazy things being it's said. Awful. Terrible, awful. Terrible. You know? And and crazy so things being have- said by the president, you know, towards the North Koreans. The North Koreans responding in light, in turn and it's putting the world under, you know, a lot of stress and tension. But the bulk of the world I think is a really great thing to remember is that the bulk of the world are, are good people. Like they're really actually good people it's only a few that seem to find themselves in powerful positions that tend to you know disrupt the status quo but most people are nice people it's a great thing to remember you know one of the things you know after my experience and uh with dr mangala and my mother wasn't there as i got older i kept thinking about you know what would have happened if my mother had been there would i have depended upon her to rescue me, uh, you know, it just, it kept, the question kept coming up. And one of the things that uh, happened after I've examined everything, I said to myself, you really, I learned the one fact that you can never walk in other person's shoes. You can never predict how you would act in any situation. There's no way of predicting. Uh, you know, you, some people say, oh, I would have done this, I would have done that. You can't say that. And the thing that has helped me also is that I've become much less judgmental on other people's uh, actions because you never know what motivated that person to do what they did. Uh, absolutely. Yes, but on now. Um, just want to ask a couple of lighter questions just to finish up. We have uh, absolutely um, uh, enjoyed is, is it doesn't seem the appropriate word. I think we are uh, completely uh, honoured and humbled and I think we've both um, gone to a, a new level in our souls thanks to your uh, honesty and, um, and your ability to share with us in such a candid form with us, Selena, and with our listeners. But there's a couple of questions that I know um, – I definitely want to know, and I want to know, first of all, has Liam Neeson thanked you for um, getting the role in Schindler's List? Because my understanding is that your son, Robert, was an executive at Universal uh, when they were casting Schindler's List, and there was a view that Liam Neeson may have actually been too handsome to play the role of Oscar Schindler and that he wasn't going to get the job. And your son called you and said, Mum, is Liam Neeson a good fit for Oscar Schindler? And it was your response that was the uh, deciding factor in whether he got the job. Is that true? Well, that, the, the part of that is true in a way, you know, that uh, I did. My, my son kept asking, you know, that they think that he might be too handsome. I said, well, Oscar Schindler was a very good-looking man. He had real charisma, you know. So... <laughs> I didn't give him the job. They gave him the job. <laughs> your, your, you gave him the job, though. I hope he's been, you know, sending you a thank you gift and a beautiful Christmas card with a nice bottle of wine every year to say thank you for, uh, you know, th- that was one of his most powerful performances, obviously. And uh, I'm still, I, I know Tam, Tom Hanks won the, the Oscar that year for uh, Best Actor and no one could begrudge him his performance in Philadelphia but uh, the way Liam Neeson was able to play that role in Schindler's List was um, incredible and and one other question um, and again you're always looking for positives out of your experiences but um, again just doing a bit of research I saw uh, you had the good fortune or shall I say President Barack Obama had the good fortune of meeting you um, a few years ago back in 2014 uh, what did he have to say and, and what was that experience like? 
Well, he is such a down-to-earth person, you know. It's so easy to speak to him. He thanked me for what I said, you know. Uh, He actually remembered my name. The most interesting thing that happened afterwards, you know, after uh, we had a a picture taken together, uh, my grandson was there, the one that worked for Shoa, and... uh, I decided to introduce him to the president, so I brought him over to the president, and I I said to Mr. President, this is my handsome grandson. He would be perfect for one of your daughters. I mean, that's how easy it was to talk to this man, you know. He laughed. (laughs) He thought it was very funny. Then he talked to my grandson about the fact that he was a senior. You mean you don't have, you're not committed or anything like that? A picture taken together. So that was really very, very nice. But I have to tell you, never mind my grandson. It's my daughter. My daughter is the one that wrote the uh, Paris Agreement. You know, she's worked now for 20 years in the State Department for on climate change. And it was... She wrote it. Well, she was at the, she was at the White House attending a meeting, and Barack Obama came into the room, took her by the shoulders, took her up to the Oval Office, had a picture taken with her, and on the picture he wrote, Thank you, Sue, you saved the world. Wow. 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 I mean, you can't imagine what an incredible person Barack Obama really is. I mean... I mean, oh, we're, you know, we're very sad. So, we're, we're sad over here in Australia that he's still not the president. We're so sad now, you know. <laughs> we're sad. This guy is undoing everything that Barack Obama did, you mm-hmm. know. So mm-hmm. ah, we just hope well, he um, survive it. Well, no doubt you will. You survived one of the greatest atrocities uh, that humankind has known. If you can survive that, I'm sure you can survive this. Um, there are 8,500 descendants from Oscar Schindler's work um, uh, over the in the war, and, um, and your two children are obviously two of them, and already there's some incredible impact uh, that's been um, that's resulted just from your story and theirs. And uh, Selena Benias, on behalf of all of our listeners right around the world, and and really, um, on behalf of Damien and myself, the sincerest of sincerest thank yous for sharing with us your experiences from 70-plus years ago all the way up to today. And as we like to wish every single one of our guests, Selena Biniaz, may the rest of your life be the best of your life. Thank you so much. Thank you for the interview. So, Damien, there's uh, so many ways that we'll share this interview and we'll do so over at thewellnesscouch.com. Um, you'll be able to find out more at facebook.com forward slash 100 not out. To find out more about Damien, go to damienchristoff.com, uh, myself, marcuspierce.com.au. And remember, there are a number of ways to get more of Damo on The Wellness Couch. Make sure you listen to The Wellness Guys and myself over at Your Exceptional Life. Until next week, thank you for your support of 100 Not Out. We really hope you've enjoyed this um, episode. And until next week, continue to make the rest of your life the best of your life. When memories unfold, poetry after participation at the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz on January 27, 2015, poetry by Selena Benias. Night, so dark, so cold, 
the wagon sways. The rhythmic pounding of the wheels repeating sends a message to my frightened heart. Do not stop beating. The sudden lurch, screech of steel on steel. The door slides open. Rouse, rouse, angry voices shouting, a multitude of dogs barking. Plumes of fire illuminate the night sky. The smoke drifts over the gathered people. The smell, the awful smell. It is the smell of fear. We have arrived in hell. Auschwitz. Selection. There he stands, resplendent in his uniform, shiny black boots, insignia on his chest, swastika armband on his sleeve, and in his hand, a pencil. Unusual, this pencil, for with one flick to either left or right, it has the power to give you life or death. In front of him, a line of naked women, all shapes and sizes. This is my second time confronting the pencil. First time was not lucky, but the pencil beckons the group back into the line. My body is skinny, undeveloped, but clean. I do not know why or how. The will to live forces me to utter three words. Lassen Sie mich. This time, the pencil slowly leans towards life. I grab my pile of clothes, hugging them, run out into the snowy outdoors. My pent-up emotions burst forth. Hysterically crying, start to put on my clothes. I'm only 13 and have gotten a reprieve from death from Dr. Mengele, the butcher of Auschwitz. May 9, 1945, Liberation. We are survivors. To exit barbed wire gate, two days we are waiting, not safe on the outside with the black shirts still marauding. A soldier on a horse appears in the distance. Behind him, a small, bedraggled group of soldiers. They have come to liberate us. We are survivors. The barbed wire gates open. We are free, hesitant to venture beyond. How can I walk alone? Not in a row of five, not overseen by guards, armed, ready to shoot. We are survivors. Will there be a rejoining with the rest of family? Or will we encounter their loss forever gone? into eternity. We are survivors. Freedom is ours. Comes with problems. Can we retrieve former lives? Can we go back to homes we lost? Having experienced horrific events, starving, fearful, we start our journey. Eleven days, walking, hitching, emaciated scarecrows reach Krakow. There is no welcome. We are not wanted. Four months later, 
we're back on the road, leaving Europe, seeking new existence in more welcoming countries. We are survivors. We shall succeed. Marta Leontine, in a small town in southern Bavaria, in a semi-cloistered convent, home of the English sisters, a 90-year-old retired nun entered the convent at age 16, never left it in all these years. She's German and Catholic. She will teach a 14-year-old girl, traumatized by years of ghettos and camps, German and English. She does not know she's supposed to hate her. Hitler's ideas and propaganda are not part of her knowledge. Her outlook on life, gentle manner, and total acceptance slowly work the magic of transformation. The realization, not all Germans are ogres. Hatred is corrosive. Have to work through anger and hate to move forward in life. We bond for two years. Leaving for America, our letters crisscross the oceans for the next two years. Marta Leontini loves to hear about America. She's so very happy to hear about my new life. The letter arrives from Mother Superior. At 94, Mother Leontine is no longer with us. That is absurd. That cannot be. For I have all her letters still. For she will always be a part of me in my heart and memories. For she was my salvation. Silent Night, 1945. Every time I hear Silent Night, it brings me back to a snowy night in Mindelheim, Germany. First winter after the war, the night sky is illuminated by a myriad of blinking stars. The church bells are ringing out, stille Nacht. No bombs falling, no loud noises of shooting or soldiers' boots marching, no commandants shouting into rows of five pushing, no more in fright cowering. We have survived. It is Christmas Eve, and I am free. I feel the peace and tranquility and hope for goodwill to all mankind to take hold. S.S. Seamarlin, the foghorn sound, the engines begin to chug. Today is my birthday. I'm 16 years old. The S.S. Seamarlin is a vessel of hope for my new life. I turn and look east, see the content slowly disappearing. It is a place I know and understand. It is a place that does not want me. Maybe the West will be more welcoming. The SSC Marlin is a troop ship. It ferried soldiers to fight Nazism. Now it ferries Europe's discards, immigrants with guarded hope. Will this new place grant them an identity? Will it restore and protect their humanity? 
only the future will tell. For now they are happy they have escaped Europe's hell. Three. In Jerusalem, in Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in the Street of the Righteous Gentiles, in a designated third spot from the start, a man plants a tree. Womanizer, cheater, black market profiteer, risk taker, gambler, takes on the biggest gamble of his life. He puts 1,100 names on a list, lies, bribes authorities, wrenches a group of human beings from the jaws of evil. This group, under his protection, will survive the war. Magnificent, this tree, dedicated to Oscar Schindler. As it grows and spreads its limbs, roots and branches proliferate. So do the descendants, the saved group's new generations. I bear witness, evil can be harnessed. People of goodwill can make a difference. Forever I shall be in debt and grateful to Oscar Schindler for giving me a life. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.